people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Мы трезвые или пьяны, не видно все равно. Эй, моряк, ты слишком долго плавал. Я тебя успела позабыть. Мне теперь морской понраву дьявол. Чего хочу Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Gianna D'Amelio. Hello, nice to be here. Also in the booth is Mr. Alistair Pitts. Greetings from the Republic of the Drowned. We are kicking off a month of discussions around Soviet cinema with a look at the 1962 film The Amphibian Man. It's the story of a love triangle between the daughter of a poor man, Gutierrez, who has been promised to the rich Don Pedro. She's saved from a shark attack by the titular amphibian man, whose real name is Ichthyander. Of course, Gutierrez and Ichthyander fall in love and they should really be together. Can they escape from Argentina to Australia and live their lives there? Or will Don Pedro not allow their love to flourish? We will be answering that question and spoiling the movie as we go along. So if you haven't seen Amphibian Man, please turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. 
Gianna, when was the first time you saw the film and what did you think? Yeah, so the first time I saw The Amphibian Man was in 2016. Um, I had just seen The Lure, The Lure. I'm never sure how to pronounce that word. Um, I'm talking about The Mermaid Musical by Anishka Smoczynska. And like everyone else who saw The Lure, I was just super excited about the potential for mermaid films to do interesting things with gender and body horror. Um, so I like went on a mermaid bender. And because I, I study gender and power in cinema from parts of Europe and Central Asia with a communist past, I was really, really excited to see The Amphibian Man because it's a camp classic. And also because the mermaid is male for a change. And when I saw it, I was just so seduced by the music and the setting uh, and the Bjork-like starlet, Anastasia Vertinskaya. I wish we could have done like a, a projection booth field trip to Baku for this. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you mean Argentina? Oh, yes, indeed, Argentina. Excuse <laughs> me. And Ali, how about yourself? So this one had been on my radar for quite a while, but I'd only seen it for the first time a couple of months before today as I knew this was coming up. So I thought I should probably give this a couple of watches before I talked about it. So this is still a relatively new film to me. I've watched it about two and a half times. First time I thought, oh, well, that was kind of fun, but like slightly, slightly underwhelming. But I think I enjoyed it more the second time, which is always the sign of a of a good film. I mean, it's just, it's so colourful and exciting and just, it zips along, like, if you can make a movie in less than a hundred minutes, that's that. I think that's a virtue in filmmaking. <laughs> Just keep it going. Um, I can see why Quentin Tarantino likes this film as as much as he as he does. I mean, there's possibly not enough feet action. I mean, there's some flipper stuff, but just like the punchy, colorful, pacey. I yeah, it's it's all of his uh, things that he's into, and music. Lots of great music, as Jana mentioned. Lots of great music. It's fantastic. Yeah, this one I had been wanting to see for a long time. And when we started to talk about doing a month of Soviet cinema, this was my request. Uh, I think the rest of the films this month are kind of split up between the two of you. You guys agreed on those. But I was just like, oh, I want to talk about The Amphibian Man because I had never seen it before. And I just was looking for that excuse to check it out. Boy, oh boy, did not disappoint. I, I was not expecting this. I was really not expecting this whole Argentinian setting, which is just, I don't know why it's so funny to me when I watch movies that are, you know, obviously here in the States, we will set movies wherever. And when I see foreign films that are set in other countries, there's just something very odd about it. You know, seeing, um, the Sargosa manuscript where it's Polish people that are, I think that's set in Spain. So it's like this one having Russian people in quote unquote Argentina and them wearing sombreros and all this. It's just like <laughs> massive sombreros. They're so big. <laughs> I'm really curious whether police sombreros has ever been a thing in South America, or whether this is just Russian stereotyping about South America. It's like, yeah, they wear sombreros, right? So the police are going to have that as part of their uniform. I'm so curious about whether that's a real thing. <laughs> yeah, very special sombreros for those police officers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the officials get their own sombreros. It's wonderful. I mean, if you're going to be standing out in the sun all day, I can see the advantage to having some, like, eye shade built in. 
it's pretty amazing this whole town that they're in. I mean, it starts more on the water. It starts with Don Pedro and his whole crew, and they are uh, pearl divers. But there's a lot of this that is set in the city proper, and you get going around this whole town quite a bit. I mean, it's pretty extensive, and yeah, everybody's got their sombreros on, and really feels like they all the extras are really aware that this movie is being filmed. I'm so glad that you suggested this, because this is a film that's almost like the opposite of what the Western stereotype of a Soviet movie would be. It's light and colourful and fun, and it zips along. Like, don't get me wrong, I love Tarkovsky as much as the next film buff. I mean, not everyone does. He has a certain ponderousness, especially as he goes on in his career. And I think that is what people think of when they think Soviet cinema. They think kind of like very serious. Not that Tarkovsky doesn't have his humorous moments in his films, but mostly it is very stern, serious, takes its time. So to see so often black and white or like sepia, whereas this is incredibly colourful and bright and just blue skies. It's the opposite of like Reaganite stereotype of the Soviet Union where everything is grey and brown and everyone hates every second of their life because the system is so oppressive that no one can have a minute of joy in their life. So I kind of like it from that respect. It's definitely telling that we all kind of chose films from the 60s because I think we may have gravitated toward this moment the cultural thaw where films really had a lot of youth and life and energy and color. Not to say that it's restricted to the 60s, but it is a very attractive time and and moment in Soviet cinema for sure. And even before we get to Don Pedro, I forgot that there's that introduction to the film, which is really fast paced and is kind of a, a data dump of all of the stuff that's going on with this sea devil. It's amazing how fast this is and just that we get all this different media and we've got the newspaper sellers and we get a lot of stuff with newspapers, which I, I think, uh, Ali, you kind of tied it into, I think his uh, character's Olson. name is Olson, yeah. the reporter. Yes. You know, very, very stereotypical South American name there. <laughs> I mean, I guess Viggo Mortensen is, is famously like Danish Argentinian. So they had lots of immigration from scandinavia as well so i love how that tied in it's just very neat and just gets you into the plot just before we get that summary though the opening shots are some crashing waves on the shore and i don't know if i can back this up but that feels like a a hat tip to battleship potemkin because i feel like there's quite a few soviet and even post-soviet russian films that are like well that's how battleship Potemkin starts, so that's a great film, so I'm going to show that I can reference the classics. So, I don't know, have no no way of backing up that that's a deliberate association, but I thought that that was cool and I liked it. The other thing is, this is the first Soviet film with underwater sequences, So, and they were like massively hyped in the press. The logistics, the technology, the hot young starlets in their bathing suits and their skin-tight fish suits... <laughs> The stunt people, you know, and the the stunt person for Ixtianzar was like a, a famous swimming champion. And the stunt person for Gutierrez was also a swimming champ who, weird fact, later went on to be the first person to train dolphins for military purposes in the USSR. 
apparently there's a, a documentary about her. But yeah, so the underwater sequences were like super, super hyped in the press. So I think like this might be, I mean, this was a huge blockbuster, but starting with shots of the ocean might be like, here's what you're about to get. Like, this is why you came here. The underwater sequences live up to the hype. They're like the clarity on the vast majority of them is is spectacular. They look so, so good. The cinematographer for this went on to shoot uh, The White Sun of the Desert, which is like a Soviet Western slash Eastern that is all that I had seen before and I'd covered on, on my show. And I wasn't surprised when I found out that it was the same guy because that film is also characterized by this incredibly vivid color and clarity and just like, wow, I would love to see this on a big screen. It looks so good. There were times with those underwater sequences where I was wondering if they were doing not necessarily rear projection, but if they were doing, if they were shooting some stuff through other things, because there were times where like fish would go past the camera lens and it felt like that was a few layers deep. I mean, I would love to see this movie if it had been shot in 3D because it has that very foreground, midground, background separation, especially in these uh, underwater sequences. They do look gorgeous, but I have to say the first time you see the sea devil, a.k.a. the amphibian man, a.k.a. Ichthyander, oh my God, did I <laughs> laugh very loud and heartily. Oh, awesome. I was expecting something a little bit more like the creature from the Black Lagoon. I'm so glad that he's not this way. When he shows up with his fin and the goggles and the scales, and I was so glad when they revealed, no, he's just a normal guy. Well, not normal. He's incredibly handsome. But when he <laughs> takes that stuff off, I was like, oh, thank goodness. I'm so glad we're not supposed to buy that this oh, is me too. part so of him. Just ice capades, basically. It's lovely. Like it's, I love it. I love it because it points to the fact that this is really a fantasy film, and or a fairy tale. Like it's, it's pretty light on the science fiction, actually. And and it's, I think it's all the stronger for it. I like that it doesn't belabor the. Okay, well, this is how the whole gills business works. It's just like, yeah, this is how he's able to swim. Don't ask too many questions. Let's move on with the plot. <laughs> yeah, that they don't even show the gills of memory serves. It's just like, well, I, uh, hey, son, uh, you had some problems with your lungs. So I took these gills from a shark and uh, put them on you. So now you're all set. Now you are amphibious, which I guess means he can write with both his right and left hand. Correct. And Don Pedro, I think, is pretty great because he starts off not too bad. He's I'm, He's not evil at the beginning or at least i don't get that impression he's just you know he wants his pearls and he gets really mad at his men when they come out of the water because they've seen the amphibian man and they're just like well we're not going to go back down there there's a monster and he just you know starts to belittle them a little bit but he definitely he becomes a great villain as the film goes on it really takes a while for it to really set in just what a dick this guy is. And I'm kind of glad for that. He's not twirling his mustache from the first frame of the film. Oh, it's interesting you say that, because I felt like he's very set up for a Soviet audience to be like, oh yeah, this is a bad dude, because of the way he oppresses his workers. Like, you know, the fact that he's a member of the gentry, he's a, he, he, like, like he later says a couple of times, like, take my word as a caballero. 
and he's kind of like makes that a point of pride it's like i'm the gentry i'm like a superior class of human to the people working for me and and when he's bawling out the fishermen slash sailors working for them he calls them skati which is like um it's it's literally like cattle so he doesn't even see the people working for him as like fully human i didn't pick up on that at all that's great yeah um he's not mustache twirl evil but he is very much coded in a in a sort of like soviet ideological no this is a bad dude throughout the opening scene i i just couldn't get over like how how explicitly the film goes out of its way to make clear that like what we're seeing is not the soviet union like we have this campy like over the top exploitation of workers for personal gain right his own gain don pedro's gain which could only happen in a capitalist country you guys right in the soviet union no <laughs> one's soviet being union. worked to death in the soviet union yeah everyone's working for the state everything's great right there's that soviet Rainbows joke that goes unicorns. yeah right there's that Soviet joke that goes like, yeah, yeah, capitalism and communism are completely different. Capitalism is man's exploitation by man, and communism is the exact opposite. We also see like a ton of crosses. We see divers afraid of the devil, which leads to cowardice, which is like, whereas in the proudly atheist Soviet Union, ostensibly there's no religious superstition, right? And that's that that would be the term for it, religious superstition. And we also see a bit of racism too, right? Like we, Don Pedro's servants all have much darker skin than he does. Uh, whereas the Soviet Union is like supposedly very proudly anti-racist and it's really selling itself in that image in the 1960s. And bashing the US for segregation and the civil rights situation. Rightly so, right? Um, well, quite, yeah, yeah. But most importantly, right, like we see a father kind of selling away his daughter's life and liberty Whereas on paper in the USSR, women and men have equal rights and women are no longer treated as property on paper. So this transactional approach to marriage is portrayed as really cruel and tragic throughout the film. I was like, why are we putting this much emphasis on foreignness and like foreign inferiority in the first scene? Like, why is it so important for the film to say like, this is not a Soviet setting? And I think it's because the film really hinges on a topic that was really close to home in the 1960s and especially the early 60s, which is generational conflict, including the damaging consequences of the utopian dreams of earlier generations, right? Like throughout the film, we see the younger generation paying for the crimes and mistakes in thinking of their fathers. And this, this feeling of conflict, of generational conflict was super prevalent in the Soviet early 60s. But it made the authorities really nervous because it could encourage revolt as it was throughout the world. So if you're making a film about problems that like officially don't exist in the Soviet Union, generational conflict, you need to say right up front, like, this is a different place. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The setting gives them a freedom to discuss these themes in a way that doesn't seem like like the filmmakers are trying to undermine the Soviet system in a subversive way. And it's ironic that like apparently audiences flock to this film because of its foreignness, because of the dancing, because of the sexy stars, the setting, the costumes. And also like filmmakers, filmmakers have super pragmatic reasons to go and go on location, right? The further you are from Moscow, the further you are from the center, the more freedom you have. And there are these great pictures of like Roland Bikoff and all these other filmmakers just like having fun in the sun. And you're like, oh God, you survived Stalin. And this is like, enjoy it, boy. Like, 
I definitely realized that there was a lot of generational stuff going on in here when it comes to, you know, Gutierrez's father, uh, Ichthyander's father, and then Don Pedro's mother. And I thought that was interesting that we just get the mother character. Man, oh man, the apple did not fall far from the tree with that one. I love how she's like, you haven't raped your wife yet? What's wrong with you? Oh my <laughs> goodness, yeah, yeah. Like, what, wow. what kind of man are you? Not breaking down your, your wife's door. and like, She's like drunk it. too. Yeah, it's rough. Mm. I assumed that that was his mother, but I should have checked the credits to confirm that because it's just kind of implied who she is because it's like an older woman living in his house. So presumably that's his mother. And also the fact that she can take that tone with him, whereas you feel like if it was a, a servant, they would be a bit like more diplomatic. But yeah, like she calls him Triapka, which is like a rag, like a doormat. And it's just like, uh, really? So you you even get some sympathy with Don Pedro. It's like, there's a reason why he is the way that he is. He isn't just a villain because he likes being bad. It's like his evil is a product of, you know, generational oppression, I guess. And also that he's raised in the gentry, which makes people that way, gives them the permission to treat people that they think of as lesser as lesser. It's like a weird moment of kind of tenderness from Don Pedro where she's like, go in and take what's yours. Like, go sleep with that woman. He's like, no, I love her. And even the villain in this early 60s film values love more than anything else. And to me, that that kind of marked this as a 60s film that belongs with any other 60s film. All you need is love, right? Like, it's, I don't know, it's sort of sweet in a way, but not that sweet. He's an asshole. It's more layers to him because earlier we see him like forcibly kissing Gutierrez because he's just like I'm gonna do the macho thing and just grab you and kiss you he will do that but he won't go as far as his mother is like yo just rape her you you you're allowed to do that and it's just like oh my goodness it just seemed like such a frank discussion of sensuality and sexuality really but also like the underwater shots we were we're sort of talking about the beginning of the film Gutierrez is trying to escape from a shark and her body like floats down to the bottom of the sea. And like, you can see her nipples like straight through her, her swimsuit. And I was shocked because I watched a lot of Soviet cinema and that was like straight up pornography for, for Soviet cinema until the, before you get to the eighties and like little Vera and stuff. But yeah, like, it's so funny how much sensuality this underwater photography allows for and especially like in in Ictiander's fantasy later they're sort of like awkwardly awkwardly but meant to be sensually like writhing together and it's yeah it was it's it's quite impressive she gets mad at don pedro for treating his workers that way she dives into the water as you said she gets attacked by a shark of course, Ichthyander, he manages to rescue her, puts her up onto Don Pedro's little dinghy that he's rowed out there because he wants to protect her, but he's kind of helpless uh, compared to Ichthyander. And then he ends up taking all the credit and saying, oh, yeah, no, I rescued you. Uh, yeah. So and that's really what pushes her over the edge and says, OK, Dad, yeah, I'll marry this guy because her father owes Don Pedro all kinds of money, apparently, and talk about an exploited worker, I think. So, yeah, here's my daughter. Let's even out the books, okay? And it's it's so cute. Ixander, like, pops up on the anchor of the ship, 
And he's just sitting there jauntily in his little silver suit. And he's like, hey, are you okay? And she's like, what? And she freaks out. But he just looks adorable. I'm going to make that my new desktop. Vladimir Korenev. He has, to me anyway, considerable Timothy Chalamet vibes with his, you know, his, his big eyes and his amazing hair and his just skinniness. And his pouty lips, like he's really androgynous. He has huge, long, long eyelashes, like beautiful big blue eyes. Yeah, he's an unlikely Soviet hero because they tend to be sort of burly Olsen-like folk. But but yeah, yeah, he's an interest. And he was a sex symbol for the rest of the decade, apparently. And apparently he hated that. Like he felt really, because this film was so successful, he then very much avoided trying to be typecast. And so he doesn't have a big filmography, even though it seems like he would have, if he'd wanted to play that kind of role, I'm sure people would have cast him because it's like, yeah, if you want to get people into this into the cinema, they'll definitely turn up for this guy. I mean, look how many people went to Amphibian Man. And he's just like, no, that's not what I want for myself. Talking about exploitation of the workers, Don Pedro gets this great idea. Well, if my guys aren't going to die for pearls, I will get the sea devil to die for these pearls. He will be mine. And obviously, we don't have to worry about him running out of air. He can work for hours and hours down below. So let's get this guy. We want the sea devil to work for Don Pedro now. And that's when his word as a caballero comes up, because when he, later on, when he promises Ichthyander that he's only going to make him catch enough pearls for to pay for something or other, and he gives his word, and Ichthyander, being the kind of naive, innocent guy that he is, is like, oh, okay, yeah, fine, yeah, I'll just do this. And then Don Pedro's like, huh, you believed me because I gave you my word. What a sap. It's around this time that we're introduced to Mr. Olson, the reporter that we mentioned before, as well as Dr. Salvatore, who is the normally in a movie, this would be the criminal mastermind, but instead he's Ichthyander's father. This elaborate setup that Olson has to go through, I think he mentioned seven secret doors that he has to go through in order to see Dr. Salvatore. Dr. Salvatore huge man he kind of looks like david byrne in the suit you know he just he's very wide he's described as being godlike he comes in and he talks about like how devils don't exist on land or sea how he's got reasons to be afraid of people i mean it feels like he's been dr frankenstein before like he's had the villagers with the pitchforks at his door before but he has this interesting relationship with the people of the land he wants to help them out and but it sounds like not necessarily through the means that they might want help he really has started to hatch this plan of well if we can make everybody have these shark gills they can live on land or sea and suddenly we have the whole world to ourselves we can not worry about overpopulation and i'm just like wow what 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 is going on he just like lays out all this stuff in like one of his earliest scenes this is the utopia that you were talking about earlier. So Olsen asks Dr. Salvatore to like help fund his leftist newspaper because Olsen is a very good Soviet hero and he works for a leftist newspaper. And Dr. Salvatore is like, I'd help you out, Olsen, but I'm not going to fund your paper because I don't get involved in politics. And Olsen presses him on this. And Salvatore is like, unfortunate people should be helped not by a politician or a journalist, but by a scientist. I will lead the land to the poor to a land of abundance where no one will oppress them. Where, too, says Olsen, 
Uh, heaven, the moon? No, the ocean. At the bottom of the ocean, they're neither poor nor wealthy. Everyone will be free and happy there. And Olsen says, that sounds like a fairy tale. And the filmmakers place a lot of emphasis on this conversation because of the framing, like both men are really looking right into the camera. They're speaking directly to us. This is an important scene. And when Dr. Salvatore is talking about the ocean, we get like this very tight close up on his eyes they're like boring into ours it's it's a little bit scary and it's a little bit hypnotic like this utopianism is is alluring and it's dangerous and Olsen is really disturbed by this idea he's like you can't change people into shark people you have to deal with human human beings as they are you can't just rebuild them for me this is one of the most important scenes in the film because this this accusation that plans for a perfect world with neither rich nor poor this idea that that's this utopianism is a fairy tale. I think it really captures the spirit of this era of Soviet cinema, but there's a bit of irony too. So this film was made during the thaw, a period from the mid fifties, right after the death of Stalin to the mid sixties. And during this period, there's like a wavering relaxation of censorship and ideological constraints going backward during the Stalin era, artists were only allowed to make work that fit into a genre of art that the Soviet Communist Party developed called socialist realism. And this was a real misnomer because there could be no realism. The authorities who developed it even used the term fairy tale to describe what they wanted. Artists had to depict a socialist utopia that didn't exist yet. In this idealized future, there's only collective strength. There's only success. Characters are two-dimensional heroes and villains but even villains disappear and you have the good comrade competing with the better comrade. And this is Stalinist cinema, right? And these, these visions, these fairy tales about creating this communist utopia, they're meant to inspire people to survive famines and state terror and war and grueling working conditions in order to build this fairy tale future that they see on screen. And after Stalin dies, Khrushchev eventually enacts a period of de-Stalinization where he walks back of some of Stalin's policies, including those applied to art. So during the 60s, when this film is made, filmmakers could, to a certain extent, start showing life as it really was and people as they really were and their concerns and their values and their flaws and their living conditions. It's telling, right, that like the first in the first big Soviet blockbuster of this era, our hero is telling a man who's trying to build a communist utopia that his idea won't work because it doesn't account for humans as they really are. This fairy tale isn't tenable. The differences in ages are also key. Again, we see this generational conflict. Dr. Salvatore is dressed like he's from the Bolshevik generation. And our, our strapping 60s hero is saying, like, your dreams didn't pan out. They're not realistic. On the rewatch, that became much more apparent, the importance of that scene. Because Olsen is essentially in the role of the skeptic of, of utopian schemes for which we can read the Soviet project, and the whole business about human nature and whether that's fixed or whether that can transform or be transformed through a political program, that has heavy resonance for like Soviet ideology because they have this whole idea of it's Novi Sovietsky Chilovik, which generally gets translated as new Soviet man, but it's really new Soviet person. And Olsen is saying, no, people's nature is fixed. You can't change them to fit this program of yours. And if you send them into the sea, 
they will long for the land. It's it's in their nature and longing. Uh, this, the Russian word Tuska that comes up later in the film when Ichthyander has been exposed to like terrestrial society, and now he doesn't want to stay in the sea. And he at some a certain point says, "I'm going. I'm going to die of longing. I'm going to die of Tuska." The first time I saw this film, I just didn't give it the credit for the depth that it has because it's flashy and fast-paced and entertaining. But there is amazing thematic depth to it. I, no pun intended with it being about sea and ocean depth. <laughs> uh, profundity. It's interesting that you talk about the Bolsheviks wanting to change, wanting to refashion the human being. And there's this idea of creating the Soviet man, right, who's a collective person. But also the 20s was a time when like eugenics were hugely popular in very scary ways. But so were the 1960s, right? It, like this film would have had a lot of contemporary resonance because in the early 60s, Soviet scientists were testing the limits of the human body to put the first people into space and to launch the ultimate nuclear killing machines, right? Like, like Yuri Gagarin had done this incredibly risky launch a year before this film came out in 1961. Um, and he nearly died doing it, but he became the first man to go into orbit. And um, Andrei Sakharov was trying to stop unsafe Soviet nuclear tests in 61 and 62 when this film came out. So this idea about testing the limits of the human body and like the danger inherent in that would have really resonated with Soviet intelligentsia, for example, who saw this film. It's super ironic that Olsen is dismissing this vision of a classless guild underwater society as a fairy tale because he's doing he's doing it from within a film that's a fairy tale right like this plot follows a classic fairy tale structure and he's the leftist for want of a better word crusading journalist he's the leftist crusading journalist but he's also played by Vladlan Davidov who's like a committed communist actor who had already won two Stalin prizes by this point so like he's the he's the <laughs> cast member you bring in to be like no 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 censorship board like it's cool we're on this look, look who <laughs> we got here yeah. yeah i mean his name is his first name is literally Vladlan Vlad, right? <laughs> yeah that is that is some staunch like communist parents <laughs> If everybody moves into the ocean, nobody can read newspapers. What are you going to do then, Olsen? He's just looking after his bottom line. Once Ichthyander leaves and goes into the big city because he wants to explore this world of Gutierrez, Dr. Salvatore won't go look for him. He's like, no, no, go get Olsen and have Olsen look for him. Salvatore won't leave his lair. He's just like, no, no. I'm good up here in my castle, you know, which is literally above everything, like built on a hilltop, though he does have, I think, uh, Ali, you pointed out that it's much more of like a bat cave kind of thing at the bottom. So they take this big elevator down, Salvatore and Olsen, and that's where we get to see uh, Ichthyander come out and take off his gear. And we realize, oh, he's just this handsome man. He's not actually a f- fish person at all. Dr. Salvatore's mansion, though, like that, that mansion and that time- technology it, it really reminded me of british adaptations of like hg wells and jules verne novels in the 60s like uh like the harry house and like mysterious island or first men on the moon and like wells and verne were both super influential on the source novel of the amphibian man but i love that 
that like little, there's like a map on the wall and there's a little man-shaped door that's like the secret door that they go It's, it's the least convincing secret so door cute. you've ever seen, though. It's like, I wonder where the secret door in that map is. Maybe where that big outline is. <laughs> yeah, it. I felt like that was, that map door was really like, uh, it reminded me of like the Forbin project or like Billion Dollar Brain. Like it really has a, a psychedelic Cold War film vibe, although this came earlier. It's very high Connery, James Bond, like Goldfinger, uh, You Only Live Twice, Doctor Bond, no. Lair. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's which guess it's the same. Is it the same year as, as Doctor No? But it's before Goldfinger and before you know, those more fantastical Bond films, because Doctor No and From Russia With Love are somewhat grounded. I guess it goes back to the whole 60s-ness of this film, even though it's very early in the 60s. Kind of prescient in that way. And when Ichthyander goes out into the city, that is where we, I mean, because we've already had some music, we've had some good theremin music going on as, uh, Don Pedro and Gutierrez's father are looking for where the Sea Devil's Lair is. As they're underwater, uh, the father's underwater, uh, we get the theremin going. But once Ichthyander goes into the city, that's when we get the, the nightclub singer. At first, I didn't think it was uh, diegetic at first. And then once we get to her, I was like, oh, okay, this is pretty cool. And him just experiencing the sights and sounds, and especially the sounds of the city. Um, and yeah, we've got quite a few musical acts in here. I was actually looking for the soundtrack because these are full songs a lot of times. This is not just incidental music. This is full-fledged, you know, and and the lyrics to the song, at least the way they're translated in the version I watched, very, very pointed to talking about the situation, this whole thing about fish and the sea and all this. I was like, okay, I mean, of course, it's a a coastal city, so they're going to be talking about fishing quite a bit, but I think she even talks about a devil, and I was like, oh, okay. I'm going to tempt the sea devil, so it kind of ties that back in, and it kind of turns that image on its head. It's that's neat. You think of Soviet film writing as kind of stodgy and unimaginative, but that's really smart and clever. You can see why people, like presumably part of how this film was the hit that it was would would have been repeat viewings, people just enjoying it so much and going back and there's so much like flashy neon lighting too. And like all the side, all the neon is for alcohol too. So it's like, look at these, look at these foreign countries, look how corrupt and drunk Decadent. they are. And of course you want to be there too, because you want to be there. But it's, I really liked it because Ixtiander is, is kind of excited and nervous and he just seems so inexperienced and vulnerable. And it's really interesting to see this fish out of water in the big city char- character hat. But it's it's interesting to see this character as male because we generally expect this character to be female. I'm thinking like Splash, like Night Tide. Seeing them in the big city, it encourages us to be turned on by like her naivety in public and sort of like the accompanying threat of sexual assault when she interacts with strangers. And then there are great films like The Lore and Shamanka that turn this trip on its head. But instead, we see our male, our male vulnerable fish out of water, kind of like he approaches women, he peers into their faces, and they're the aggressive ones. They're like, yeah, come here. Um, or they're sort of like mesmerized by his beauty, and they just stare back at him. But it's a nice, it's a nice flipping. Yeah, but some of the, well, the women are, because he doesn't know how to behave, he's intimidating because he's... I mean, he's very skinny, but he's he's very tall and imposing, and he's 
and he just doesn't understand about personal space. He's a close talker and and a and a starer. This is after the nightclub sequence, right after it. He's wandering through the city in uh, basically midday. It's really really bright, and you have, I guess, this um, like working class woman who's very young woman, very covered up. She looks a little bit like Gutierrez, so he's trying to work out whether it's her. And he's like right in her face, and he's not meaning to be a creep. But he's being a creep and she's just like, oh, okay, I'm just going to back away. I think I read in Moscow Primetime by Kristen Roth A. Um, no, don't know if I'm pronouncing her surname right. But that Soviet critics compared Theander to Tarzan somewhat. And Tarzan was massively popular, it turns out, in the in the 50s in, in the Soviet Union. Because when the Red Army conquered nazi germany they looted a whole bunch of films from germany and some of the most popular that they showed to soviet cinema goers were tarzan films so that whole outside you know someone who's an adult but hasn't been raised in human society and therefore is in some ways very childlike definitely ties in with the with the whole tarzan thing the way that he will kind of like poor at jane because he doesn't know that you're not meant to do that it was even released in france as tarzan de mares <laughs> you're kidding oh. that's crazy there's a poster for it um where it's Gutierrez on the right hand side the people on the boat uh next to her and then the title and then underneath it's uh ichthyander but not looking like a creature at all looking much more like a tarzan character and him holding her like he's about to bring her up to the surface there's also a film that was released really briefly a year before this film, and it's called The Man from Nowhere, and it's an allegorical comedy by Eldar Yazanov, who directed Carnival Night. And it's about an, an anthropologist who unearths a, a Stone Age man and brings him to Moscow. And the Stone Age man, like Ikhtiander, he's like he has a really kind heart. He's feared because of his kind of deviance, his nonconformity. He falls in love at first sight. And he's kind of untouched by society's conventions and hypocrisy. And like, he can't understand ownership or money either. It'd be interesting to watch that film with this one. Oh, yeah. You really get that when he goes into a square and he sees this uh, boy being beaten by a man with a fish. So he just starts giving out the fish and he's like, there's plenty of fish in the sea. And then a cop in the, in the sombrero comes in and he's like, you got to pay the guy back for the fish. And he's like, oh, I don't I don't know about this. And and someone hands him his coat and he just pulls out a wad of money and he's like, will this do? <laughs> yeah, because he's really not he he's vaguely familiar with the concept of money, but he doesn't really get it. God, he's rich. And then the fishmonger is just freaked out with this. And he like he takes the big wad of money and then he just like scuff, you know, shuttles off with his wheelbarrow because he's just like, uh, if this guy realized how much money he's given to me, I'll have to give it back. And he's just like a crazy millionaire. That scene is so great, too, because we get these kind of like alienated experimental setup shots of Ictiander kind of getting warped in mirrors and appearing at diagonals, the more sweaty and the more desperate he gets. And using any non-straightforward filmic techniques to convey a character's emotional and psychological state is a real hallmark of Thaw cinema. It wouldn't have been permitted earlier in sort of the Stalin era where characters had to be very two-dimensional and, and the narrative line had to be very straight. And, and so, yeah, any psychology is re a real innovation and a real brave touch from filmmakers in the early 60s. 
that shot from above where he's in traffic and the cars are just passing and nearly hitting him and it's quite intense that feels like a little bit of a callback to as a sequence in the cranes are flying from maybe four years before that where the heroine in that like runs out into this road and you have all of these tanks and military vehicles like going by her and it's it's incredible shot but this this is not on that scale but it does feel like a little hat tip to that he just comes across as such a noble innocent like he can't stand cruelty to animals there's that crazy shot where the cow is being lifted by the crane and he just like panics he can't he can't stand it but he's perfectly happy to like play yo-yo with the jellyfish in the ocean he has that sympathy for the cow and later on he sees a fish that's beached and like throws it back so it doesn't essentially suffocate uh, but then when he's trying to get the pearls to impress Gutierre, you know, he's just like stabbing that knife in and like cracking them open and just like, OK, uh, that's that's a bit of a contrast to what we've seen from you before, Ichthyander. Yeah, you would think you'd walk up to those and like pet him and they just spit the pearls out into his hand. Ram. Crunch. Yeah. And it's like, he's oh, worth that's... it. And eventually he finds Gutierre, and then, of course, he finds San Pedro, because they're together as well as the father. And there's a little bit of a scuffle at, uh, I guess, the father owns the place, which is interesting, too, because it's like a point where Ichthyander even calls out Don Pedro. He's like, do you own this building or something like that? And he's like, well, no. But there's a big scuffle. Uh, Don Pedro throws this chair, goes through the window, and then you get that great shot of Ichthyander or his stuntman jumping through that hole in the window. And I really appreciated that uh, big action moment in the middle of this film. That was pretty great. Yeah, I mean, it's not quite the same in that he's jumping through the window. But when you see him come through the window and rolling off, it reminds me of that moment in Terminator 2 when Arnie comes through the window. It's just like a great like action cinema moment. Gutierrez is outside speaking with Olsen. And we learned that like Olsen had been coming around her place of work a little too often, but she's sympathetic to his newspaper. And she's like, listen, like you're out of money. You've pawned your pocket watch. I'm going to help you. I'm going to, I'm going to give you my pearl necklace. Let's meet at the dance later. She goes back inside and Ichthyandad is like outside spying on this exchange between Gutierrez and Olsen. It's a love quadrangle, I guess. It's a love quadrangle. And Don Pedro's inside being like, what are you doing talking to that other guy? My fiance might be a little more discreet. And of course, we get this kind of lame old school sexism and it and it comes off as like, oh no, men shouldn't own women or pretend that they do. We get the incredibly weird first exchange between Ictiandad and Gutierrez, where he's basically like hopping over a counter to be closer to her. And at first she's like, she's understandably put off, but when he tells her he loves her, she's like strangely captivated. And she's like, so was it love? Was it love at first sight? And he's like, is there any other kind? And it's just like, she, Gutierrez's ability to not be weirded out by stuff is unbelievable. She is unflappable. But he's not saying that like it's a cheesy line. He like sincerely believes it based on the line delivery. It's just like... Saying that she looks like Bjork is very appropriate. She does have that kind of interesting look to her. My wife was just like, wow, she's kind of odd looking. And I was like, I think she's gorgeous, but a great look for Gutierrez. Yeah, and it's a real sign of 60 cinema too, because earlier we have everyone sort of looks like a combine harvester. You know, everyone's very stocky and look very similar, but in the... Soviet 60s, you get characters who are kind of lean and elfin, a little bit like more like in Western Europe as well. Both of our young leads have just the hugest eyes. 
This is the second film I've talked about in the last four weeks where Pearl Necklace has come into play and being parlayed into funds for something. Uh, my man Godfrey was using uh, a Pearl Necklace to uh, build up his stock portfolio and help out the father of the family that he's with, the Bullocks. And here we have this Pearl Necklace being given to Olsen so that he can keep his newspaper going and of course we get this whole like oh you stole the necklace at the ender no it wasn't me and they dives into the sea and goes off but that's after this very intense it almost looked like a dance fight but i guess it was just this ritual of these two guys plus there's a woman eventually but them dancing together very very intensely and i really was just like wow what is happening here this is fantastic and everybody's gathered around and watching this dance and i'm like okay this is great and this is where ichthyander meets back up with gutierrez and she's uh got the necklace inside of her snatch snatch <laughs> yeah, yeah. Clutch? Clutch? I don't know. It eventually falls into the ocean, and all of these guys go in there, but of course, Ichthyander is the guy that is able to get that back. Has a literal built-in advantage. Yeah, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But before that, when they go sit together, it's my favorite line in the film. He says, before I felt good only underwater, now I feel good only when I'm with you, and she is unfazed. Like... Imagine yeah, if someone had said some, that to you. There is some definite um, Anakin Skywalker Star Wars Episode 2 vibes about Ichthyander. Just no questions, though. No follow-ups before I felt good only underwater. Yeah, that's cool. At least he doesn't get into too much detail about sand. I don't like water. It's wet. It gets everywhere. <laughs> good lord. The dance scene, it seems like a little like a little reminder of the fact that we're in a love triangle or a love quadrangle. There are like these two male dancers like fighting over the pretty lady. And it reminded me like how it struck me how episodic the film is and how it would work well as a TV show. Like this kind of interlude reminds us of the plot. It's like we could just kind of enter the film at that point and kind of get what's happening. And it makes sense, I guess, because the the novel was serialized. But yeah, I think this would work as a TV show. And it was actually it was actually made into a this the same source novel was adapted for for Russian TV in like 2004. Apparently, it's it's not good, but yeah, it'd be interesting to see. Yeah, I tried tracking that down with no luck. Though Amphibian Man, the book is pretty easy to get. I picked it up for five dollars on Kindle, which was great. And right on the first page, there's just like the ship, the Medusa, and this and that. And I was just like, wow, this is really reading like what we saw. And that's a little a little hint that Don Pedro's ship is called the Medusa. It's like, yep, villain. Yeah, and I didn't even notice that until towards the very end when the name of the ship gets harpooned. And I was like, oh, okay, I didn't see it before that. But they really, literally, put a fine point on it. I love, I love that hold up sequence and just like part of this, you know, being a a swashbuckling journalist is your ability to blag your way through a a difficult situation and the whole like yeah well they don't know that this is just a harpoon gun it looks pretty impressive so i'm gonna hold up this ship Um, it's very impressive well and they're traveling on that thing that looks like it's from thunderbirds or go but sorry i'm jumping ahead a little bit back at the necklace scene somewhere around here we've got amphibian man having a dream about Gutierrez and them swimming together, her wearing the same spangly outfit that he likes to wear underwater. 
that whole dream sequence, I think you mentioned that before, Gianna, it is just terrific. Yeah, and it's tragic too, because in order for them to be together like Ixtiander wants, Gutierrez would have to be less than human. She could live in his utopian republic, but she'd lose her community because presumably she'd be shunned as a sea devil as well. And just, but just this, just this, like the amount of money and effort put into this beautiful sequence where they're like revolving around each other underwater, just this much focus on personal desire rather than collective effort, rather than the triumph of the collective. It's shocking in Soviet cinema by this point. Don Pedro comes to the father and is just like, Hey, we got to make this happen sooner. You know, basically I think he knows that he's in danger of losing Gutierrez. So they say, all right, you know, you're going to get married on Saturday and the day of the wedding comes and my God, the canted angles of this church, just amazing. I mean, cause we've seen some pretty stylish direction throughout this whole thing. But once you get to that, you're just like, it's almost like an act break at this point, because suddenly now, you know, to your point, as far as, far as this being serialized, here we go. Introduction to the church, all of these canted angles. And we're going to get some very interesting camera work as we go along here, especially Don Pedro is going to get some great shadow stuff going on on his face. But man, oh man, once they are married and the father starts to get into the vehicle with them to go back up to Don Pedro's villa and he's just like, yeah, no, you're not coming with us. And by the way, here's a check for a new net. You better catch this amphibian man, the sea devil. We don't want uh, any problems from him going forward. Thanks a bunch. Yeah, yeah. The fact he's like literally paying off his father-in-law as they're getting in the car to leave the church. It's like, Don Pedro, you are a piece of work. And it's worth mentioning, right, that Gutierrez only gets married because she thinks Ixtiander has died because they meet on some cliffs, Ixtiander and Gutierrez, and Ixtiander is wearing, for no reason that's discernible, a giant sombrero. And they're having this love scene, and he's trying to give her some pearls, and she's she doesn't want them. She's like, I, I can't accept these. She's being sold as a bride, you know, and she doesn't want her real love to be linked with monetary value or the exchange of goods. She's a good socialist character, right? And Ixtiander's like, why, but why did you throw the pearls into the sea? I would have given you my life, but you wouldn't even accept the pearls. But then the cops show up with Don Pedro and to escape, Ixtiander jumps into the sea and his little sombrero bobs up. And that's why she thinks he's dead. But yeah, so that's why she gets buried. Yeah, the church is, I mean, it's so scary. It's such a villain. And yeah, we mentioned this a little bit before they get back to the villa and she just is there blocking the door to her bedroom. Good socialist character knows how to build a barricade in a hurry. And we get to meet Don Pedro's mother, who's just like, yeah, go in and rape your bride. And it's what a real man would do. Talk about mustache twirling. If she (laughs) She had a mustache, she would be twirling it here. (laughs) She kind of does, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, The church is scary, but also the mansion is scary, right? Like, like, this is definitely the the hangout of a villain. Like, wealth doesn't buy you. I mean, I guess it does if you're Dr. Salvatore, but um, he's lonely too. So, yeah, No, no mansions for anybody. The dad who's been rejected after selling off his daughter, the dad comes and kind of stumbles and he's muddied and he seems drunk and he's aghast at what he finds, which is his daughter barricading herself in her room and Don Pedro trying to get in in his flamboyant dressing gown. And oh, he's that like, dressing gown. Oh, so, he's like, but it's red too. It's very devilish. 
And he turns to Don Pedro and he's like, you're hurting me. I dreamed of seeing Gutierrez rich and happy, but he hears her weeping. This is so the crux of the film, right? Both dads, Dr. Salvatore and uh, Gutierrez's dad, they thought they understood how to make their kids happy, but really they were looking after their own interests, building a utopia, getting rich, paying off your debts. Yeah, it comes down clearly on the side of the young people, right? Happiness lies not in your parents' conception of wealth or power, but instead in love and in helping out your friends. And that's another reason why I think this film really fits into any 60s pop canon. And here it is kicking things off in 62. Gutierrez's father, when he's trying to talk her into the marriage with Don Pedro, he literally says, think of my old age. Wow, you're expected to essentially sell yourself you know, in order to make sure that he has a comfortable retirement. Great parenting. But under the czar, like women had to submit to the men in their household for all things, under all reasons. Like that was the law. I mean, this is, I think we're still combating czarist sexism, but from within itself, a very patriarchal Soviet culture. But on paper, at least this wouldn't have been allowed. There's a lot of castle intrigue around this point. I mean, this is this is not where the father stabs Pedro. That comes up later on. This is where the mother at one point hears Ichthyander talking with Gutierrez and he confesses, you know, who and what he is. And he also finally says, you know, hey, it was me that rescued you from the ocean. Like once she says like, oh, well, he saved my life. And it's like, no, that was me, lady. And then I think he gives something to uh, this boy to take it to Olsen, kind of let him know what's going on. They end up catching Ichthyander, and this is where he gets exploited to go get pearls for Don Pedro. And as you said, Ellie, this is where he gives his word as a caballero. The take-home message is like, capitalists have no honor, right? The only people with honor in the film. <laughs> the only people with honor in the film. Gutierrez thinks she's repaying a life debt. Olsen has his revolutionary newspaper and his altruism. Ichthyander is kind of guileless and pure in his non-binary body. These, these qualities isolate you. These, these qualities isolate those three characters from this like brutal, acquisitive world. World. But if you do have honor, if you are Gutierrez Olsen or Ichtiander, like you'll either be broke, hunted, or in trouble with the cops in this in this capitalist environment. But I, I think this kind of sympathy with the outsider who isn't who isn't hypocritical, aggressive, or corrupt enough to kind of fit in with the morally bankrupt world, the sympathy with the outsider helps place this film within a global current of 60s cinema. And yeah, this is where we've got that awesome submarine that shows up. Dr. Salvatore's finally left his lab and he's ready to help save his son. And they go up onto the ship. Ichthyander has been strapped to the anchor and dropped to the bottom of the sea, though luckily he's able to escape from that pretty easily. And once they are reunited, father and son, he's just like, oh, I, I want that uh, lady that's in the cabin. That's the the one that I've been talking about, Dad. And uh, once Salvatore finds out that she's been properly married to Don Pedro, he's just like, yeah, sorry, can't beat City Hall. We got to take our lumps and leave, son. We can't just take this woman away from her husband. It's funny, too, because we have that great, this great shot of Ixiander, like about to fight Don Pedro and he doesn't. He gets pulled back, but his chin is in the bottom left hand corner and his forehead, his forehead is in the like upper right hand corner. And throughout the film, we've had these really tight close ups on faces. But this one with the whole head filling the frame, like in this very diagonal way, 
it's an odd angle for a film, but it's a classic shot for a comic book. It's like a single panel that shows that the hero is angry and about to unleash hell. And as the film continues, we have Don Pedro's kind of villainy get more and more pronounced and it becomes more and more caricatured. And, and the title, The Amphibian Man, suggests probably to a Western audience that this is going to be a superhero movie rather than like a fantasy romance or whatever it is. The Soviets didn't have a superhero culture like whatsoever, but there is this rich culture of fantasy and sci-fi about communities and outsiders. It's interesting to me to kind of flip things around and see the amphibian man through the lens of a comic book because it has clear heroes and villains. It's got a superpower, a millionaire inventor, like quests, kidnapping, escapes, a mansion, a hero reporter, bumbling cops. I wonder like what it would be like to watch the amphibian man in the context of other comic book movies from the sixties, like modesty blaze or like Barbarella or danger diabolique. Cause I think the hero of this film, this actor, uh, Vladimir Koryanov, uh, he looks a lot like the actor in danger diabolique, but also like how vapid would, would modesty blaze and danger diabolique seem when we have like diabolique and his naked girlfriend, like rolling around in money. And we have like Olsen pawning his pocket watch and, and yeah, it would just, it would just, I think those films would just come off as really, really vapid. It's so interesting that you bring up the superhero angle because something about Ichthyander reminds me a lot of Spider-Man. It's this, the fact that he's this quite skinny, lithe kid, but he ha- several times it's established that he has super strength. When there's the fight in the shop, he easily throws Don Pedro to the uh, to the floor and we see him break out of handcuffs and like it's only when you have like four or five guys jump on him that you can subdue him so I thought that was that was something I didn't spot so much the first time but the second time it's like yeah he has very Spider-Man-ish vibes I have that's probably entirely coincidental but I kind of like that about him as well. Well, he's got some Aquaman vibes as well, because at one point, and I really thought this was going to go someplace. All right, we can't take the girl, so let's go back and lick our wounds at the castle, the 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 criminal lair, which is what it uh, Salvatore's uh, lab looks like. Here comes the cops. I guess the seven gates didn't work for the cops. They knew how to get through here. So hey, Ichthyander, go escape. You know, get get down into the Bat Cave and get out of here. And he goes through this gate that they have underwater, and all of these guys in uh, diving suits are waiting for him. So he starts screaming out, and they cut to this dolphin. And I was just like, oh, okay, he's calling to the creatures of the sea. This is going to be great. But I don't think that ever pays off. I don't think we get to see the dolphin attack these guys in their diving suits. They just end up taking him back to the police station and throwing him in a big tank of water. Yeah, it's a little disappointing that nothing happens with that. Also, again, this is something I only picked up the second time through, but uh, Dr. Salvatore says, go by sea, it'll be safer. And that's immediately when he gets captured. So it's another little hint of like, yeah, dad doesn't know best. He really doesn't. (laughs) And I thought for sure he was going to get away, but... Uh-uh. I guess it's because the sea is so peaceful. Maybe the dolphins don't have enough kind of vicious energy. Although if Gutierrez's stunt woman was training them, <laughs> it could be used for military purposes. 
And then in, in the prison, Don Pedro visits Dr. Salvatore and he's like, listen, I'll get you released if you create thousands of people like Ictiander and then we can be the two richest people on earth. Dr. Salvatore had wanted to create a race of amphibian people, but in order to realize his socialist ideals, not to create pearl diving slaves, right? But the doctor seems to sort of recognize the similarity between his own ambition and Don Pedro's. So he like orders Don Pedro out disgusted. And I think that's kind of the turning point where he realizes that he really messed up and that he has to self-sacrifice to save Ictiander. It's got to be something hearing your dream come out of the mouth of your enemy and just realizing, oh, maybe I wasn't so smart in the first place. This is when we start to get that crazy lighting on Don Pedro in some of these shots. It is just fantastic. Uh, there's one shot where he turns around and uh, his face is very highlighted by the lighting as he uh, faces the camera. I just love some of these shots of him. He This is full-fledged villain. And, of course, this is where he meets his end by the Gutierrez's father coming in and stabbing him. And I was so glad. I, at first, I thought, oh, no, he'll get up and this is just a flesh wound. But thank goodness this is the dispatching of Don Pedro. That surprised me so much the, the first time because so much of Gutierrez's father, he's so groveling and so like capped offing to his social, quote unquote, superior. And then he's just like, no, stab. And again, it's foreshadowed because you have that scene on the rowboat when Don Pedro is going, he says, says to, well, Balthazar is, is, the, is the name of the character, you look very piratey. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's who my ancestors were. And it was with knives like this that we like cut out the guts of anyone who got in our way. And I'm just like, okay, that's a bit dark. But it comes back because he has some of that ancestral viciousness or like, don't trifle with me, nurse about him. So I should have seen that coming, really. Even when he's with his daughter, Gutierrez is on the left side of the frame, usually, and he's sort of like hunched and groveling beside her. He definitely comes out as the weaker character, um, even with his his daughter. But yeah, I think I think the moral of this story seems to be that like the best thing the older generation can do is sacrifice themselves so that their kids are no longer burdened by the results of their father's mistakes. Sorry to harp on about this, but like by any standards, this is a very 60s theme globally, and it feels slightly ahead of its time for a film made in 62. Of all the things that happen in this film, it's the police who are the ones that really ruin the chances between Gutierrez and Ictiander because of the way that they keep him in a tank. He now has been ruined. He cannot breathe air anymore. He has to go back in the water full time. So now they are the ones that have put this barrier between the two lovers that she cannot join him and he can't be with her. He can no longer be a creature of two worlds. He has had that choice taken away. He is now fully has to stay in the ocean. And the end when he's there and they're, you know, putting water on his neck and kind of reviving him. It's really sad. And this is a very, very sad film because the two characters don't end up together. You would think watching this film the entire way through, you're like, oh, yeah, they're going to be together. This is going to be, you know, Sally Hawkins and Doug Jones at the end of um, The Shape of Water. You know, maybe she's got secret gills, too. Who knows? You know, somehow that film finds a way through the magical realism that, 
you know, they're going to be together, but nope, not this one. And it's not like Salvatore is saying, oh, I can do this operation on you too. And you can be, you know, the second amphibian person. But yeah, it's, you got to have that classic Russian ending, Mike. Yeah, no happy end for you. When I showed this to my husband, he uh, he was also really touched by the sad ending. And I was thinking about how during like pre-revolutionary silent films, they would have to shoot the regular Russian version with the sad ending and then reshoot it for international audiences with happy endings. But like there just isn't a, yeah, there just isn't a, a real history of happy endings. But I, I really like the final scene because it's this really cute love triangle, right? We see Olsen carrying Ichtiander to the sea like a lady on her wedding night, right? He's like in, in Olsen's burly arms. And then Gutierrez like hopping behind them carrying his flippers. And we get this really interesting framing where Olsen lays Ichtiander in the shallow water and Gutierrez holding him up on one side and like Burley Olsen is holding him up on the other side and Ictiander's face is exposed in the middle. And I think the scene really emphasizes the actor's androgyny, like he belongs in the middle of the spectrum between super feminine and super masculine. This has just literally occurred to me is it feels very like Christ just after he's died on the cross, like scenes of that, like when he's being carried in somebody's arms and he's just like just dead and lifeless it just reminded me of that image imagery which i don't know whether that's a a conscious choice because they're right there is some other jesus stuff in the film that's quite surprising like literally balthazar talks about dr salvatore as as being a god and a man who makes lame men walk and blind men men see which is extremely messianic language yeah you also talked about the just in terms of like callbacks like that moment where it doesn't seem clear why we're focusing on this at the time but Ichtiander like stops and he sees a fish flopping about on the sea and he like stops and throws it back in the water it's like this nice little callback to the end of the film at the end of the day in this soviet blockbuster with such a big budget it's happiness not political change not ideological fulfillment not collective progress. It's personal happiness that's the goal. And the older generation just doesn't get it. It's like, I think I think the last thing Ictiander says to Gutierrez is, I'm sure you'll be happy one day. I want you to be happy. But like, no wonder Soviet critics and the filmic establishment had trouble digesting this and considered it vapid and morally bankrupt, right? But it is also like a classic Soviet film in the sense that it's possible to read it in various ways, right? Like, ostensibly the world of the film is foreign. And if you focus on that, the reading stays safe. Like all this avarice and violence, exclusion of anyone who's different, the tension between fathers and children, the selfishness, all of that stays over there in the hedonistic, morally bankrupt West. And the heroes of this film get to have Soviet values, right? Sobriety, generosity, kind of purity and integrity, but of course, if you are aware of real rifts within Soviet society, like tension about scientific experiments and, and generational conflict, then it's possible to read this as a film that really has windows onto the world. And is quite subversive. And is quite subversive, yeah. All right, we're going to take a break, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about Athletic Greens. They have a product that I literally use every day, not figuratively, literally. I started taking A1G because, well, they sent some to me and I wanted to try it out. I've 
had these greens type of products before. It's been a few years and I wanted to try out this AG1 from Athletic Greens and I've been doing it now for a week. It is one scoop into water, eight ounces of water, chug that thing down in the morning time and it is supposed to give you a much better what they call gut health. It's lifestyle friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, gluttonous like I do. It's got less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no chemicals or artificial anything. They say it tastes good. I'll say that I can drink it and not gag. It goes down pretty quick, folks. And you don't belch it up either, which is what I've had happen with other greens products in the past. Altogether, pretty cheap. It's less than three bucks a day. And it is uh, cheaper than your cold brew habit. You know, because those millennials, they're always drinking the expensive coffees. So this is less than one of those cup of coffees. And it's definitely cheaper than buying all of the supplements that come in this one packet of AG1 from Athletic Greens. Even better, Athletic Greens is a climate-neutral certified company, so they're not screwing up the environment while they are providing you with good gut health. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day, and that's it. No need for a million different pills, supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy for you, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-suppressing vitamin D and five free travel packs for your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com projection. Again, that's athleticgreens.com projection to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. I use it. Maybe you should use it. Try it out. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. So where does this kind of fit into Soviet science fiction overall? I mean, it's, um, I mean, obviously you've got your Tarkovsky's, you know, you've got your stalker, your, um, Solaris, all of these things, but, I don't generally think of, well, actually, I take that back because I think of some of the Corman films that would buy Soviet science fiction films and then recycle those effects and recreate movies for American audiences using special effects that were done for Soviet films. So I know there's a rich history of science fiction in the Soviet Union, though I don't think most people just jump to that as, oh, yeah, all these Soviet sci-fi movies. In Russian literature before the Soviet era, and and you know, it's it's my problem that I only know about Russian history, not the history of sci-fi and other parts of the world that got subsumed into the Soviet Union. I'd love to study sci-fi, like the history of sci-fi in all those places. In Russian literature and literature of the Russian Empire, there's a long history of stories about like mythical societies, including mermaids, technological wonders, stories about heroic outsiders with utopian values in a world that's not ready for them. And these are some of the ancestors of Soviet sci-fi. And then in the 1800s, there's a lot of tales of voyages into fantastic worlds that are really stand-ins for this world. And these are sort of fantasy satires. And many are censored under the czar because they talk about class in dangerous ways. 
and they're only printed during the during the Soviet era. And then we see we see like more utopian fantasy novels kind of bubble up during periods of social unrest. And at the turn of the century, many Russian sci-fi novels are super inspired by H.G. Wells and Jules Verne. Prominent Bolshevik leaders are writing sci-fi before the revolution, such as Malinovsky, who wrote about uh, exemplary Martian societies. And, and, and these novels either transferred current contemporary political struggles onto other planets, or they juxtaposed contemporary society with those of alien races who are communist and have peaceful, harmonious lives. And then after the revolution, sci-fi spreads like wildfire throughout all aspects of Soviet culture. This is, I think, because in areas controlled by the Bolshevik government, the 1920s is a time when like, the future really actively overtakes the present in the minds of people making decisions. The goal of the revolution was to change the political system, but also to change how people think and behave in every aspect of their lives. There was this conviction that achieving global communist revolution required, like you were saying, Ali, the, the invention of a new type of human being. In the early 20s, sci-fi is like the super dominant theme in novels, plays, essays, like reading circles, films. There are eight Soviet sci-fi films made before 1926. Lenin is is constantly talking about the potential for space travel and space communism. And in Soviet work, you often see this juxtaposition of like a conservative, militaristic, czarist society with a hardworking, peaceful, classless alien race that is clearly superior and communist. Or you might see like a rogue scientist inventing something dangerous, like a death ray that leads to the collapse of capitalism and the success of the People's Revolution. And at this point, new Soviet citizens have lived through like revolts, loss of property, civil war, World War I, famine, state terror repressions, but in sci-fi films in particular, you see that war is super rare in the harmonious communist future that results from everyone pulling together. So I think sci-fi was an attempt at like a balm, like a way to convince people to work toward this vision of the future. And I also think transplanting communism into settings so far into the future probably made the revolution seem more set in stone when in fact the political situation in the 20s was actually quite chaotic and violent. So that's in the 20s. Lenin is meeting with H.G. Wells, who had a Russian wife, and that, that meeting between them apparently did not go well. And there's a lot on the internet about that. But sort of as the, as the 20s come to a close and Stalin rise to power, his aim stops being a global revolution. His aim is to centralize Soviet power within the Russian empire, expand and defend Soviet borders, reject anything oppositional or foreign, industrialized to compete with the West and science fiction is largely silenced. And what remains is sort of limited to describing industrial advances on earth. Unfortunately for him, this is when like the weird imaginative, slightly fucked up Alexander Belyaev enters the picture. In 1928, he publishes the Amphibian Man serialized in a popular magazine. And it's like super successful with the public, but the authorities are highly suspicious. And this marks the beginning of the end for his career. Yeah, in terms of his work, I guess Belyaev was kind of a throwback. Like he, his work was reminiscent of that of Wells and Verne, with a lot of like adventures and romantically alienated hero and fairy, fairy tale elements. And the Amphibian Man kind of follows that classic Wellsian sci-fi tradition in which social strata are separated vertically. So, like in in Metropolis, you have like the wealthy literally living on top of the workers, but the Amphibian Man flips this. Right, the, the utopia is at the bottom where there's no strife, no waves. So what 
distinguishes Belial from the other people who are trying to write, like uh, Vernon Wells, is his focus on the potential of the human body. Belyaev had a disease that affected his spine, and it led to like these really prolonged periods of immobility. And he said that that influenced his fixation on the capacity to improve on biology. So his work is full of like cyborg modification and eugenics and selective breeding, which was a big disturbing theme in Soviet sci-fi. In one famous short story, Belyaev has a scientist keep a severed head alive. And this is called Professor Dowell's Head from 1925. Yeah, we talked about that back when we discussed the brain that wouldn't die. Is that Jan in a pan? Is that that? Yes, that's Jan in the pan. That's brilliant. I love that film. Belyaev's work was so popular that apparently like this short story that he wrote, Professor Dowell's Head, it inspired real scientists to experiment with head transplants of dogs. It's really hard for us to imagine like just how seriously science fiction was taken in the 20s and the 60s, which were like the two big golden eras of Soviet sci-fi. Yeah, and I'm just thinking of that being parodied in Futurama with all the famous head jars, particularly Richard Nixon. Apparently there's like a famous film adaptation of that Belyaev short story called Professor... Oh, you've seen it? Professor Dahl's Testament? Mm-hmm. Oh, man, I gotta see it. Is it good? It's okay. Belyaev is not on my radar at all, but talking about the modification of the human body and genetic experiments, it's reminding me of uh, Heart of a Dog, the Bulgarkov novella from... I think it was written in the 20s. I don't know at what point it actually got to a wide audience because it's very much a barbed satire. But the film adaptation of it from 1988, Soviet adaptation, is well worth checking out, And as is the book. And that's very much playing on the whole, can you make the new Soviet man or is trying to change human nature through science and your socialist program only doomed to failure. It's such a fun book and great film. There's so many great films about that. I'm thinking like Hammer and Sickle. And is it called Taxidermia, that Hungarian film about? Yeah. Oh, man. I was wondering if you had ever thought about covering that film. I've thought about it. It, it usually ends up in a lot of lists with like, you know, oh, fucked up cult movies. I saw it at Toronto years ago and I remember liking it, but not necessarily loving it. But I'd be game for another try. I can't get it out of my head. <laughs> I think that's usually a good sign, but I don't know. Man. Oh, yeah. There's definitely some very striking images in that movie. Good Lord. In the novel of The Amphibian Man, it was actually a case of art imitating life rather than scientists being inspired by a short story. And what I mean by that is Belia have claims to have based his Dr. Salvatore on a real Argentinian doctor who went on trial in 1926 for experimenting on an indigenous youth. And yeah, it's suggested that the doctor in the book does the same with Iktiandar. Feliayev went to a seminary and then he trained as a lawyer. And in the novel, apparently he has Dr. Salvatore put on trial for blasphemy for having modified Iktiandar, who is this indigenous boy who he adopted. Dr. Salvatore is like, no, 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 I, I made sick bodies healthy. I made old bodies young. He also makes female bodies male, which is like, really uncomfortable in that context, like as if he's improving them. Oh. But the court ultimately finds him guilty because he's kidnapped a kid. The court denies him the right to be part of society. 
So the, the moral is like in a capitalist society, even an improved body becomes dehumanized and operationalized. So ultimately, like a, a new degree of freedom beyond body modification is required. And this points to the need for like social and political revolution. And in the book, Ictiander goes off to live on a Pacific island far away from capitalism. And Gutierrez marries Olsen, who is her childhood best friend. And who's always been there for her. So that's nice. The union of writers accuses Belyaev of depravity and of spoiling readers' tastes. And he's eventually driven out of a job. He can't write anymore. And he has quite a sad death during the Nazi siege of Leningrad in the early 40s. Oh, my goodness. I was going to ask, as an artist, whether he had been swept up in the in the Great Purge of 37-38. But, oh, yeah, he gets to live to die in the Siege of Leningrad. So I, I'm, not sure that, I'm not sure that that's better. So Soviet sci-fi withers after 1929. And this is, this is part of like a broader halting of imaginative experimentation in all the arts. Like from 1930 onward, anticipating the future is something best left to Stalin. Stalin accidentally almost kills the Soviet cinema industry because he basically decides he and and the people immediately below him that Soviet cinema can only produce masterpieces, which no pressure, guys. And that means that they go from producing, I'm going to get the figures wrong, but tens, nearly hundreds of films towards the end of the 20s to by the time of Stalin's death, it's it's literally, I think there's one year where there's four films come out. Basically, everyone is so looking over their shoulder that and self-censoring and things aren't getting off the ground that film industry just grinds to a halt. I think it's, um, her surname's Bella Dubrovskaya. Um, I forget her first name. There's a fantastic book called Not According to Plan, which is how the Soviet Union's uh, film industry just ground to a halt under Stalin, the reasons for that. It's so fascinating. Highly recommend digging that out uh, for listeners who are who are into, you know, exploring more about, uh, about, yeah, the Soviet film industry and its history. What's crazy too is that Stalin was legitimately a film critic. Like he would, he would edit scripts line by line and those documents still exist, so you can still read them. I mean, Lenin said the cinema for us is the most important of all the arts, but Stalin really took it seriously. It's shocking. It's really scary. And I love how his late night film screenings make it into the death of Stalin, because that is a real thing about him. Like all the other things about him, he was also a film buff who watched the film Chapayev like nearly 40 times in about like a, I guess, two and a bit year period. Crazy dictators have their hobbies too, is a guess is what I'm saying. Stalin dies luckily in 1953, and then like four years later, Soviet scientists put the first satellite into orbit, Sputnik, and it's this huge success, and the kind of the world is electrified by what this achievement could mean and where it could lead. Um, and it kind of leads countries all over the world to beef up their science education and sort of the the space age and the space race makes science fiction this like global phenomenon. And it lights a fire under Soviet sci-fi again so that science fiction kind of really reshapes Soviet culture into the 1960s. The period when The Amphibian Man was made was during this kind of relaxation, this tentative relaxation of censorship and de-Stalinization, where we really see the imagination blossoming again in Soviet art. Professor Anandita Banerjee, who's a professor at Cornell, she's a Soviet film scholar, among other things, 
she describes science fiction as an education in imagining otherwise, which I really like a kind of like education in desire. Sci-fi during the thaw is, is it's impatient with old cliches. It's thirsty for new knowledge. It's diverse. It deals with outer space and cybernetics and anthropology and sociology. It's best-selling, widely translated. It's especially popular, popular with people under 20 and over 40. And it's seen as this serious mode of social education. Unlike a lot of sci-fi in the West, Soviet sci-fi was often female-centric. And when the stories were about Earth, they tended to highlight the damaging consequences of Western materialism and imperialism. Mm, This is making me think of, it's from the early 80s, uh, Through the Thorns to the Stars. It's variously translated, the the title of that. There's one English language title that calls it Humanoid Woman for some reason. And that has that what reminded me of that was you saying the thing about like critiques of Western capitalism and its effect on the environment, because there's a whole sequence of, uh, because it, it focuses around this. But she's like an artificial human, but she comes from a, a much more utopian world. It's worth checking out. I, I'm, I'm not going to try and summarize it when, when it's like three years since I've seen it, but that very much has. It has a, a sequence where a polluted planet, like its atmosphere, its polluted atmosphere is sucked up by this giant suction machine that's just instantly repairing the damages of like a rapacious capitalist society. It's a out there film. It's it, it's so odd, but it's worth worth tracking down. I guess it was one of the first ten films I covered on 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 my show when i was getting it off the ground because uh, a friend of mine was like i'll come on your show if we talk about sci-fi and i'm like okay so during this period when sci-fi gets legitimized again and it takes off even more a lot of authors who died in obscurity or in the camps are now revived and championed including alexander Belyaev, which helps explain how his most famous novel gets turned into this huge budget production with cutting edge effects in 62 right Toward the middle of the 60s, some sci-fi writers kind of tested the bounds of censorship by including critiques of Soviet life. Uh, These references are oblique, ostensibly aimed at fictional societies or conveniently the West, like Argentina. Um, But these critiques are framed so that the audience can understand that the topic is actually Soviet society. And one example is the novel Hard to Be a God, which was published only two years after the film The Amphibian Man's Release. There's a great episode of The Projection Booth about Hard to Be a God. And then sort of from the from the mid-60s onward, the thaw ends, Khrushchev is ousted, censorship tightens, particularly from 67 onward. There are lots of arrests of artists, sort of artistic communities split into more conformist and dissident camps. The invasion of Czechoslovakia in 68 creates a lot of disillusionment. Soviet sci-fi becomes increasingly dystopic and it reflects these really high levels of disillusionment and entropy. And the Soviet Soviet press really attacks science fiction at this point, calling it slanderous and anti-Marxist and vicious. And sort of through the rest of the Soviet period, sci-fi is essentially a vehicle for dissent and for conveying despair. Um, And it was really kept alive in underground presses and people selling copies of books secretly. In 1956, you know, I compared Ichthyander to the creature from the Black Lagoon but it's so different. Obviously the creature is very much a creature, but the third creature from the black lagoon film is creature walks among us where it's kind of the opposite of the amphibian man, where 
they throw fire at the creature and damage him so much that they end up giving him an operation and basically giving him the ability to breathe above water. So now he's breathing our air and walking among us, as the title suggests, though it's very much more of a Frankenstein story. It's very much more of what you would see in The Shape of Water, where it's this horrific creature that can be out of the water and can attack people uh, that way. He's much more um, just this very broad-shouldered, horrific creature, as opposed to Ichthyander, who's this angelic creature that walks among us. The Shape of Water, like, I think that's why the Amphibian Man has come up a lot lately, because Del Toro, Guillermo Del Toro, he claims never to have seen the Amphibian Man. He cites the creature from the Black Lagoon, right? But a lot of people are pointing out that Del Toro's film is, like, way closer to the Amphibian Man, right? Because it's set in 62, the same year the Amphibian Man film comes out. The color palette's really similar, at the crux of both films, the creature's respiratory system breaks down under harsh conditions. The leading female characters from Argentina in both films, no, from South America. In both films, there's this prison escape facilitated by the friend of the female lead in which the friend drives a truck into the prison and then takes the female lead to the water to release the amphibian man. And even in the credits of The Shape of Water, the character is credited as the amphibian man. And it's just like... (laughs) Oh, no way. I totally believe he doesn't remember seeing it. Like maybe it slithered kind of out of his subconscious when he was a kid or something. But it's I think it's at least likely that other people working on the film were inspired by it. This film wasn't just like the first post-Stalin blockbuster in the USSR. Like it was sold to dozens of other countries, especially throughout the global south, including Central America and maybe Mexico. So maybe Del Toro could have seen it. The Russian film critic Anton Dolin like literally put the question to Del Toro and he's like, nope, no, it's just a coincidence. I love Anton Dolan. He's the best. But yeah, yeah. I don't know, man. I don't know what to make of this. Of all the films that we're going to talk about this month, I think this one might be the easiest one to find, too, because this has been put out on Blu-ray. was put out on DVD by Image back in 2001, I want to say. And then in 2015, another company put it out. There's a really nice video out on YouTube showing how it was restored and showing the old scenes versus what they've done with the restoration. Because as we've said through this entire episode, this movie is gorgeous. And so to see it fully restored and see those colors just pop for us, it it was really such a treat for the eyes. And the ears, right? I, my husband is a thereminist. He's a, he plays the theremin professionally and he's a, Oh, no way. Yeah, and he's like, that's obs- fucking awesome. He, Mike White, he thinks you're fucking awesome. Like, he is obsessed with mid-century soundtracks and sci-fi in particular, and he is obsessed with your Phase Four episode. Like, he's still talking about that interview with the Ant Wrangler, but he was giving me all of this information about the music in it, and apparently, like, apparently, he says that it, there's not a theremin in it because. Uh, the pitch is too accurate and constant. The slide between notes is too smooth and the tone is too pure than the theremins of the time could achieve. Oh, um, wow. Well, okay. the, but he says there's, there, it's, well, at first he thought it was an Ant Martino, which is like a keyboard instrument that sounds a lot like a theremin. And it's even more common in 60s soundtracks. I know of that instrument only because I am a Radiohead fan and Johnny Greenwood's noted film composer at this point uh yeah that's one of the obscure instruments it's so beautiful the on martino it's really really cool and the older ones and then the very newer ones they have that ribbon what is it a ribbon controller it's like you wear a ring on your finger and you like 
you slide it over a, a strip on the instrument and that's what creates the pitch. It's like really, really cool. So initially, initially Alex was like, yeah, it's maybe an Andemart to and some hydrophones, but then he did some research and it's apparently a Soviet synthesizer called the Ekfoden, which has the right pitch bend function that can make those sounds. And there's a beautiful Ekfoden record that came out in 64 that you can find on the internet. It's so cool. It's really lovely. Oh, please send me the link to that. I am yeah. a lapsed musician myself. Just when I hear weird sounds like like the undersea sound, which is so enchanting. I'm just like, how did they do that? Is that a keyboard? What is that? I want to know. <laughs> it, yeah, Alex was losing his mind. He was. It's so. It's so exciting. It's so complex. It was really baffling too. It's really cool. Well, I apologize for calling it a theremin earlier, and I'm so glad that we have the real scoop on this. <laughs> Gianna, you mentioned that you had read a, an interesting queer reading of the film, and I'm very curious to know that. I mean, gender in the amphibian man is funny because, like, Gutierrez is like an ideal Soviet woman. She's strong willed, she's hardworking, she rebels against being bartered away. She loudly protested against Don Pedro's brutal treatment of his workers. She ultimately takes pity on her dad and submits to his will, which is favored in this patriarchal society. She, she sort of gives away her pearls to support Olson's leftist newspaper. But in terms of the men, we also have like two ideal Soviet men in the film and one villain. Like Don Pedro is sexually jealous. He drinks, he lies, he's cunning and boastful. He's aggressive. He treats Gutierrez as his property. And then Olsen and Iktiandar are sober. Sobriety was a key virtue for Soviet men on screen. And they're both very gentle and polite and they don't compete with each other for Gutierrez's affection. Olsen is sort of burly, macho physically, but very tender and very altruistic. And self-sacrifice was another key virtue. And we see how Olsen puts himself in harm's way to reunite the woman he loves with the amphibian man she loves. Um, so overall, we have like a pretty typically instructive Soviet model of how good and bad men behave toward women. In addition, there's this amazing scholar named Alyesha Serrada, and she writes about the ways in which this film kind of does and doesn't align with conventional gender norms. And she says it doesn't because Iktiandar exists on a spectrum between sharks and humans, which makes him literally non-binary, right? And he's exploited by this binary hierarchical world in which real men, Don Pedro, exploit their quote-unquote frogmen, they're divers, he calls them toad, I think he calls Iktiandar a toad at some point. Our hero's hybridity really puts him at odd with this very binary world of super masculine and super feminine, and also at odds with the world of like humans and the animals they exploit. And his status as someone on a spectrum, instead of at either end of the spectrum, endangers Iktiandar's autonomy in his life. So even though he's biologically male and straight, his non-binariness kind of erases some of his privilege. And also there's the actor's androgyny, right? His eyeliner, his short shorts, his skin-tight suit. They present He wears a romper. He wears a romper. <laughs> he point. does. It's so cute. Yeah. We haven't talked about the fact that he's got like a seven-inch dagger sewn into his suit that's the same color as the suit, but it's like right where his groin is. Doesn't did anyone notice that? It's just like, what's happening? What film is this? This kind of new kind of masculinity, this slight androgyny was really daring for the time. And even, even in the relatively more permissive environment of the thaw, um, but it was actively uh, accepted by at least some members of the audience because the actor became a super heartthrob. However, ultimately, gender in the film isn't that fluid, Sarada points out. Like a man is still a man, even in his skin tight outfit. And men and women are still drawn together by love. Sarada also points out like, like relationships are pretty 
traditional in problematic ways, like the fact that Gutierrez is unconscious during her first encounter with Ictiandir and his love for her is totally based on her on her looks and his savior complex. And he pretty much stalks Gutierrez and wins her love slash sympathy, at least initially with like his odd naivete. But yeah, I, I bring this up just because I'm really excited by an increasing number of people bringing queer and gender studies to Soviet cinema without these these and other contemporary approaches Soviet films are really at risk of being frozen in a historical and nationalist context and so left behind. And there's a lot of resistance from kind of the old guard of academia, especially in post-Soviet countries against this kind of reading. They have gay people in the Soviet Union? Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. I only know about Russia. Like, this is my own problem, but Russia has a, a great long queer history in terms of art. And maybe we can talk about that sometime. Although um, Parajanov was was persecuted for uh, his not conforming to uh, gender norms. I mean, yeah, he was persecuted for a lot of reasons. But yeah, he was locked up for his homosexuality, apparently. Yeah. Yeah, I don't envy anybody who is gay and in the Soviet Union. I'm sure it was not a pleasant experience. Homosexuality was was deemed as as bourgeois and decadent so that was yeah the justification or quote unquote uh, on ideological lines for for persecuting there's a there's a lot of really interesting writing about what it was like to be gay in the soviet union i've got behind me a book called queer in russia by laurie essig that i think came out in the early 80s there's actually quite a lot out there. It's really interesting. Masha Gessen writes about it as well in her in their amazing book, The Future is History, as well. Yeah, we talked a little bit on the, the last Ego Fest because there was a question as far as Soviet films and uh, specifically Russian films. And just somebody had brought up them being not played at film festivals and... Uh, taken off of streaming services. And I was just like, that is a really bad idea. You know, if you want to understand people, use cinema as a way to get a toehold at least onto people's culture, you know, and, and just this whole idea of like understanding people through cinema, realizing that, you know, because for a lot of years it was very tough to, to see Soviet cinema in the States. And you were just had a few representatives as far as like, you know, Oh, well here and you can go see this art film and you know, you're getting this very jaundiced view of what the Soviets are like. Whereas this, you know, you're seeing romance, adventure, you know, music, all this kind of stuff. I think it's a wonderful thing. And, and especially at this time, where people are villainizing all Russians for things that are going on in the Ukraine. It's like, yeah, let's have a discussion about this. I think now is a perfect time to talk about Soviet cinema. I understand why Ukrainian filmmakers don't want to appear at film festivals with Russian directors and Russian filmmakers as well. I've been really grappling with whether this is a relevant time to be looking at Soviet films. And I think it is like, it's a, it's a, it's a strange, it's a disquieting time to be thinking about films made by and within a Russian dominated empire that included Ukraine and other parts of Europe and Central Asia. We started planning these shows in the middle of 2021, which was like right before Putin published his deranged essay trying to justify his upcoming invasion. Yeah, yeah. special military operation. Uh, I, yeah. I don't know if we were planning these shows today. We might, we might be thinking about so about Ukrainian cinema or something else. Maybe not. 
but I, I, yeah, I really do think it's a, it's a relevant time to be thinking about Soviet films because every time I check the news, like someone is making an analogy to the USSR, the Ukrainian politician, Yulia Tymoshenko is warning neighboring countries that Putin is trying to recreate the Soviet union. And many of these countries are responding with similar concerns and military analysts are saying like this war is modeled exactly after Soviet invasions of like Hungary in 56 or Czechoslovakia in 68 or Poland in the eighties. And journalists who grew up in the Soviet union, like Masha Gessen are saying that like inside Russia right now, there's already a Soviet level splitting of reality in two in the sense that like there are people who acknowledge resistance and repression and those who don't. So there are two realities and thinking about the films that we're looking at this month, like all of these analysts seem to be pointing to two specific Soviet eras. Like some argue Putin is sending Russia back into the seventies and early eighties because of economic stagnation and the fact that his totalitarianism completely lacks any coherent vision of the future. And then the other camp, they're saying Putin is bringing the Russian Federation back into the Stalin era, because this is when the, the kind of bloody myth about Russia being an elder brother and restoring unity was used to crush sovereignty of neighboring countries, make violent land grabs. And of course, the Stalin era is also a time of purges of the media and purges of any perceived opposition and international isolation. And that's why I think it's interesting that like this month, we, we kind of randomly decided to look at films made right between these two periods right between Stalin's later purges, which we talk about in the Kristalia of My Car episode, um, and the, the stagnation era of the 70s and 80s. Like the, the films we're talking about are made during the cultural thaw when the Soviet Union was distancing itself from some of Stalin's policies and kind of opening up to the rest of the world in certain ways. Cinema in the 60s is still a state mythmaker, but filmmakers for the first time have this kind of tentative, inconsistently way to show what life was really like in the Soviet Union. So the truth could kind of shine through in glimpses. We're looking at like a super diverse group of films. We are not looking at documentaries. We're looking at, you know, like a kid's satire, a melodrama, two films about alienation in Odessa. But in each film, reality flashes through these state mandated myths, right? Like generational conflict, we see like the triple burden on women compared with men. We hear about intimate partner violence. We hear what it's like to grow up with your creativity and your initiative kind of constrained by the state from day one. Whether these glimpses of Soviet reality bear any relevance to the present or the future, and I think they arguably do, diving into these films, I think, can only, it can only add color and nuance for us when we hear the word Soviet bandied about in the press these days. I think this is indeed a very important time to be looking at Soviet cinema, particularly from the 60s. So this month, I'm not sure how many trailers I'm going to be able to find for the movies that we're covering, which is a real shame. But with any luck, you're about to hear a clip from our next film. When I was Я тоже отдыхал в пионерских лагерях. Дети, вы хозяева лагеря. Вы. От вас что требуется, друзья мои? Дисциплина! В 
день приезда он фехтовался на палках. Ты меня в гроб входишь. Я издал приказ об отчислении Иночкина. Ну что он такого ужасного сделал? Ты лучше посмотри, что у тебя в отряде творится. Пять волхвороков, четыре сыпью, инфекция, интоксикация, карантин. Карантин! Что здесь? Завтра бабку поли... тут такое начнется. А че ты здесь делаешь? А? Кто отдаст свою tick off as many films from my list of things I need to watch as I can. Um, I'm really excited to continue learning about Ukrainian cinema through like online screenings and databases like DA films and talk flicks that support filmmakers under siege. Ali, how about yourself? Well, I am working out the way forward for my long-running show, Rus Falls Unite. I'm really regretting that as a <laughs> a choice of title right now but i guess the way i see that is that you know if someone is described as an anglophile or a francophile you don't assume automatically that they're on board with all of britain and france's um colonial adventurism in the in the 18th 19th uh, 20th century so yeah so i'm i'm figuring out the, the way forward with that and then i'm i'm guesting on on other fabulous shows as well like i've got an episode of the uh t hanks for the memories podcast where i'm guesting on a show about bridge of spies so bringing my uh <laughs> cold war interests to that um and yeah of course you can find me on on platforms like letterboxd and i'm on twitter as well so if you just look for alistair pitts on on google you'll you'll find me thanks again folks for being on the show thanks to everybody for listening thanks especially to our patreon community if you want to join the community visit patreon.com slash projection booth every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world with an army of shark men that are willing to do our bidding in a totally benign and non-imperialistic way Thank you.